Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. We are a weekly Columbus-centric podcast focusing on the civics, lifestyle, entertainment, and people of our city. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. This week, on the occasion of his recent retirement, I spoke with former executive director of the two downtown special improvement districts, Cleve Ricksecker. We talked about what a special improvement district is, the state of downtown, why he's retiring, and why Columbus needs a screamer. You can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Also, the Confluence Cast is on Patreon. Find out how to support this podcast on our website, theconfluencecast.com, or at patreon.com confluence. This episode of the Confluence Cast is sponsored by Gateway Film Center, a nonprofit cinema committed to storytellers and amplifying the impact of their work in our community. A story told by an authentic voice can inspire new ideas and has the power to entertain, push boundaries, spark new levels of empathy, and advance social change. To learn more about their programs and plan your next visit, please visit gatewayfilmcenter.org. Enjoy the interview. Sitting down here with Cleve Ricksecker, most recently the executive director of the Capitol Crossroads Special Improvement District and the Discovery Special Improvement District. Cleve, how are you? Doing great. Good. We're talking here. You're immediately past executive director because you just recently retired and we're talking on the occasion of that retirement. So first of all, congratulations. And how has a retirement been? Well... I plan my retirement for a year and a half before June 1st of uh, 2020. Uh And so the first thing that happened, of course, was COVID-19. And then my last day at work was the day after the first night of protests over George Floyd's death. Oh, my. So I I walked out of my job with, with two emotions. One was guilt, but the stronger one was relief. (laughs) well and it's totally understandable and it's good to i was actually a little curious like it was everything that's sort of happening in the world at all an impetus but you're saying no it was indeed you had been planning this for a year and a half yeah yeah it was a long process and it was purely coincidental that uh, i left when i did although honestly it's been so painful seeing what's happened um to downtown since i left that i am uh, it would have been emotionally very difficult for me to to see 21 years of work, um, you know, threatened. No, absolutely. And for those that don't know, let's sort of talk through at a high level. We, You and I did an interview a couple of years back, and there's an episode talking about uh, both both districts. But just at a high level, what is a special improvement district? How is it funded and structured? Just, you know, what's the elevator pitch? Yeah. So these the special improvement dis- districts were created in 1994, and the state legislature wanted to put downtown areas that had fractured ownership on a more competitive footing with a place like Easton that has one owner, and that one owner can require all their tenants to pay for marketing, security, um, cleaning, landscaping. But when you have fractured ownership, downtown areas have not been able to provide that sort of centralized management. 
And so under Ohio law, if owners representing most of the property sign a petition for the city to levy an assessment, then all the property owners have to pay into a fund and the organization functions like an Easton. Mm -hmm. I think the interesting thing to note there is that it is based on sort of a willful participation of the property owners. It is. And, and when they sign a petition, the petition actually specifies what types of services the owners want, which is what's so remarkable about downtown CPAS in the downtown owners representing 60% of, uh, more than 60% of the property for the first time in the history of North America. And I think second time in the history of any country, um, just ask council to levy an assessment to pay for transit services. I mean, that was a remarkable mm. thing. And so the, the downtown property owners um, are interesting because downtown is not the easiest place to make money. And so the people that own and manage property in downtown tend to be more into aesthetics and more into uh, the value of urban space and more dedicated than, than somebody who manages a Walmart shopping center. Mm -hmm. Well, and that was a big part of what at least the, the Capital Crossroads District did, right, was a lot of sort of basic litter pickup, uh, maintaining planters in the area, a large amount of sort of safety, which gets perceived a lot of interacting with folks who may be interacting with people in a way that they don't want. Right. And that was sort of correct me if I'm wrong, that was the initial goal of the Special Improvement District was basically make this a more pleasant place to be. Yes. And that's the, their typical services for these organizations, cleaning, landscaping, um, safety patrols. We had especially police officers. Early on, we were one of the earlier downtowns to actually employ two um, social workers to reach okay. out to homeless people and people on the streets. Um and so uh, it was. Um, uh, it's always done in response to a need. And so the I always said this: the SID was the lint trap for issues in downtown. When when there wasn't an obvious solution, it would end up on our desk, our desks. Um, and and more often than not, the the special improvement district would, would respond by doing whatever it was the owners wanted the SID to do. What sort of annual budget was the the SID functioning under? Uh, let's see. When I left, the two SIDs were um, functioning at somewhere. Uh, between four and four and a half million dollars a year. Okay. Um, but uh, that was about to go up because both special improvement districts were reauthorized um, beyond uh, 2020. And the the amount of uh, assessment was going to go up for both. Okay. And so, so that, assess that assessment is voluntary as well. It's determined. No, it's, it's, what's great about special improvement districts is the assessment is mandatory. And, okay. uh, you know, special improvement districts could, in theory, if somebody didn't pay their assessment, foreclose on the property at a sheriff's auction. But what most what all but one of the special improvement districts in Ohio do is they ask the county auditor to place the assessment on the property tax bills. OK. And the county treasurer won't accept tax payments unless the special assessments assessments are included. And what's so great about that, then, is that you know, if somebody wants to pick a fight with the SID, you have to pick a fight through the county treasurer. <laughs> There you go. And, and I'm sorry, what uh, what I meant was sort of the amount of the assessment. While it may not, if they didn't sign off on the reaffirming of the district, that's not necessarily it. But the amount that everybody, the, those that do sign on to it, they all sort of agree, yeah, we're going to pay roughly this much. And it's based on the value of the property. Yeah. And the trick to running a special improvement district, if you're a staff person, is to make the rounds and talk with the property owners 
first mm-hmm. of all, figure out what it is they want to do, and then figure out how much they want to spend. And so uh, we've never done a petition drive at either Capital Crossroads or Discovery without knowing in advance, A, uh, what the owners wanted, and B, uh, we knew we'd be successful if we did a petition drive, having talked gotcha. to the owners first. Right. And so nobody's getting basically surprised. Like they know whether right. they're going to buy in ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. And is Ohio unique at all in this in this structure or is this pretty is this replicated across a lot of different states? Um, each state varies a little bit. Um, I think Ohio's um, special improvement district uh, statute is is a good one. Um, it really um, it was uh, written by the Building Owners and Managers Association, BOMA. And so it's really set up to protect property owners, to make the, um, the work of the SID uh, predictable, um, avoid surprises mm-hmm. and avoid changes. And so it's, um, it's a cookbook that is you know, fairly easy to follow. And it's one uh, that people have some faith in on, uh, you know, as a property owner. Gotcha. Talk sort of about your background. How did you get to, because were you the initial <clears throat> executive director of, of the Discovery District? Yeah. Or excuse me, of the Capital Crossroads District? I was um, uh, head of the Short North Business Association back in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And every year I would put my knee pads on and I'd go out and get down on my hands and knees or get down on my knees and beg merchants for their two cents a square foot uh, voluntary membership fees. Yeah. And if I did 20 things right and one thing wrong, uh, oftentimes the merchants would say, forget about it. I'm not going to pay my dues this year. And and so I spent you know 80% of my time hustling money and yeah. 20% of my time delivering services. Well, in 1994 is when the state passed this uh, statute allowing for special improvement districts. Um, the first in the state was Dayton, downtown Dayton. And so I talked with a the guy there. Um, I then um, had to clandestinely talk to property owners because people at the short north didn't didn't want it was mainly a merchant organization. They didn't want the owners really to organize. They wanted it to remain I a merchant driven organization. Yeah. And so I was for, forbidden to work on this. And so I had to sort of sneak around um, and talk with owners on the side. And what really drove uh, the special improvement district was the idea of the of the arches and along okay. high street. Um, Jack Lux, uh, uh, I had talked with Jack Lux, so who is a developer, owns Continental Real Estate. Okay. Uh, and I talked to Jack about, gee, wouldn't it be nice to have an arch at each at each end of the short north? And Jack said, forget that. Do an arch every 300 feet. Right. And so I thought, okay, why not? And so we talked to the owners, and they were really kind of jazzed about that. Um, and so it included uh, money for the arches uh, with a match from the city, and then some money also for some basic cleaning and safety services as well. And so I, I didn't follow all that all the way through. I, I went to Riverfront Commons Corporation um, before I finished that work, but I got the first petition done. Um, okay. And then I really liked the idea of that. Um, and so eventually uh, John Rosenberger, Capital South, asked if I would do the same thing in downtown. This was back in 1999. Okay. And it was a dream job. It was a dream job. I love downtowns. I love cities. And so, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of pissed off over the years about what's happened to American cities and American towns since I grew up in the 1950s and 60s, where okay. things were walkable and things were locally owned and there's good public transit. And, you know, you knew the people that had the stores and they, they supported your local uh, charities. And so much of that went away that um, really my work has been driven by uh, anger and my choices like blowing up Walmarts or channeling <laughs> my anger towards something 
more productive. And so I've decided to, ch- to channel my anger and it's worked. That's, that's good. And so I, so you then, by my math, you have three special improvement districts forming under your belt, right? So what are the sort of successes of those, in addition to the arches, and we don't have to get into the, the lighting debacle of them, but what, uh, what do you hang your hat on as the individual successes of those districts? Sure. So um, the Short North, really the arches were the big, the big thing in the Short North because it really identified what is the Short North. Mm-hmm. And um, it was an iconic um, feature and, and I think it's really fueled investment in that area. I mean, I'm sure it's fueled investment in that area. Mm-hmm. And downtown, um, downtown is a much more difficult place to work in the short north because there was no sense of uh, cohesion among the property owners. In fact, there was, they didn't know each other. They didn't work together. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the, uh, you know, it was really downtown was very much, you know, a bunch of, old white men in three-piece suits working for banks and insurance companies and, you know, stuffy law firms. And um, it wasn't really receptive to uh, new ideas uh, so much. But what's interesting about a, a special improvement district is that when you talk to owners, they, they typically will come up with a series of things they want to do that are not political. And and so okay. the what's so interesting is that the range of owners in downtown uh, are Tea Party to, you know, um, leftist. And, okay. and they could all agree on things that was always amazing to watch, including CPAS, downtown CPAS. Mm-hmm. And so uh, stripped of political labels, it was so great to, first of all, get the owners in downtown to work together, to know each other, to come up with common objectives in downtown and to then do things that they might not agree to in a ballot box. So, for example, um, the idea that they downtown hires two social workers mm-hmm. is kind of amazing when you think about, you know, who owns the, the commercial property owners in downtown. Um, but as a staff person, we could talk to the owners and say, you know, the police can only do so much uh, from an enforcement standpoint. And the police may take a person who is doing something wrong in the sidewalk and arrest them every day. They'll be released the following morning and mm-hmm. it's just a revolving door. And here's this other way we could try to solve this problem. And so providing practical solutions that on the face of them look like, you know, bleeding heart liberal things. They really aren't. They're just practical solutions. It was so refreshing to see the owners in downtown because they are enlightened enough and they will listen to ideas. Um, the other Prime example, of course, is downtown CPAS, uh, mm-hmm. faced with a shortage of parking, faced with increasing vacancies in commercial offices, uh, turnover of staff at places like hotels, mm-hmm. uh, and knowing that the city was not going to build any, any more parking garages. The owners had a choice of uh, either letting downtown go fallow or trying something that never been done before. And God bless them. They actually tried something. Uh, that had not been done before. I got a lot of support from the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission. They, they, they matched the money that the downtown property owners came up with. Mm-hmm. And it worked. It absolutely worked. Um, and, and so um, it's, uh, it's, it's going to continue even after COVID now. We just recently, I just recently found out that the CODA and the CID have agreed to a plan for 2021 
um, okay. the SID board has agreed to go forward with CPAS in 2021. Because um, I was a little worried with COVID, you know, people have not been riding buses. Uh, offices have not been used by people. There's been plenty of parking available. And so I was a little worried that program might go to the wayside, but it's not. Yeah. Well, and does it help a little bit that it's not like you're asking two or three stakeholders um, who it's actually affecting their bottom line. Hey, we would like to do this thing, whether that's the, the hiring the two social workers or the CPAS program. It's not a whole lot of additional investment. It's the virtue. It's basically the virtue of collective action. So in, is it in addition to that? And sort of, I guess what I'm getting to is how do you convince folks that this is a worthwhile investment and a worthwhile program to embark on. You guys did a fantastic job of putting together every year the state of downtown research piece. Is it is it that? Is it sort of arming them with facts and and spreading out the liability, for lack of a better term? Yeah, and I think you said it very well. It's it's a matter of giving owners the facts and giving the owners the, what their options are. We've never, mm -hmm. we never try to convince owners of anything because you can't, the minute you get into trying to sell something to okay. uh, a property owner, it, it, it gets thrown back in your face pretty quickly. And so, you know, our way of, of, of uh, proposing services would be to, to lay out what the situation is, lay out what the options are. In the case of downtown CPAS, there, there, there was no option to, to downtown CPAS. Um, so the only the only issue was, do you want to spend the money to try this out? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and as part of that process, we did a pilot program, also funded by Morpsey, that demonstrated a, sh a significant shift from driving a personal vehicle to taking transit. And based on based on that pilot program, the owners were willing to take the leap and go that one step further to to take it to scale for thirty thousand people who worked in all the Sid buildings in in uh, downtown. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's I'm interested then in the the other side of the stakeholder argument there of getting people to participate in that program. And is is that did you guys view it as a a pretty simple marketing campaign or how, how do you convince folks of the viability? I know transit's a big issue for you. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, in your heart, mm -hmm. frankly. Uh, and how do you convince people that this is a valuable thing to do that you're actually saving money that that they should be doing it well the that's a good question and um the the program allowed us to do a couple of things one is that we then made contact with um about oh 450 uh tenants in downtown uh, all the okay. big ones um uh most of the ones that that we've not worked with are you know one person two person offices Mm -hmm. So we, we were able to get uh, make contact with most of the tenants in downtown representing uh, the, an overwhelming majority of the uh, employees because all of a sudden they had an, a uh, benefit they could offer mm. their employees, which was free transit. And whereas we, we could never convince HR people to take transit seriously before CPAS, once CPAS became available and there was a benefit they could offer, then people were interested in, in the whole process. And so we're able then to talk to 450 HR people. They were then motivated because they were hearing complaints from their, from their employees about parking to pass this information along. We made transit sexy through our, the materials that we produce, videos, 
um, and uh, and static um, pages as well. Um, and one by one, people that had never taken transit before began to take transit. And we did uh, some testimonials, um, you know, senior executives, people that broke the stereotype um, of, of people that take transit because, you know, part of the problem in Columbus is that transit really ties into two negative um, uh, attitudes, racism and classism. And, you know, so mm -hmm. the, 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 you know, the notion was that the only people that took transit were poor black people. Um, mm -hmm. And, it, you know, it's an, I'm not, it's just, it, it is what it is. And, and, and talking about this is so important. Well, yeah. what people discovered was, first of all, that's kind of nice to share space with somebody who's not just like you. And the second thing is that they, they discovered that there were executives taking the bus. But mm -hmm. the next thing that happened is so wonderful is that this program began to integrate the system, at least during rush hour, and it mm -hmm. became much more of a economically and racially balanced um, bus system during rush hour because of this. And and some of the people that really were into it the most were people making the most money. You know, senior vice presidents making $300,000 a year who discovered they'd rather take the bus and do something other than stare at a windshield for mm -hmm. you know 30 or 40 minutes. And the other interesting thing was we didn't see a shift among hourly uh, workers. Okay. Because they were already taking the bus. What okay. they got was a 6%, you know, for somebody making $11 an hour, uh, they got an after-tax raise of 6% because of CPAS. And so all of a sudden the hotels and the restaurants were using CPAS as a recruiting tool. And hmm. hotels, we we're getting calls from hotels outside of the SID saying, how can we get in the program because we want to offer the same benefit to our employees. And so they benefited, you know, lower wage workers benefited. Um, upper income people uh, saw the benefit of taking transit. Um, and uh, it it's kind of sold itself because then it became a talking point in various offices. And um, uh, individual employees would kind of sell it to other people in the office saying, hey, it's a great way to get to work. Mm -hmm. And so we saw an increase uh, before the program started, about 5% of the workforce within these 30,000 people, about 1,500 people a day were taking uh, transit to work. Um, uh, after the after a year of the program, we increased that to somewhere between 10 and 14%. It's not precise, we could measure precisely. Yeah, we but it's close a, a to threefold, yeah. But almost, it could be almost a threefold increase. Um, and uh, it became more, it, it just felt more like, you know, being in New York and less like being in Nashville. I'm curious if there are things that you embarked on through either SID that you just weren't able to accomplish or things that you wish you had been able to, to bring to fruition. Oh, yeah, there's several. One of which Come uh, on. We, did, we did an ice skating rink uh, two years, uh, one in states, one year at State Street, one year in the uh, the West Plaza of the, of the State House. The uh -huh. first year I did a Ferris wheel on State Street, which I thought, you know, who wouldn't take a ride a Ferris wheel in December on State Street in front of the Ohio <laughs> Theater? Well... I had, I had budgeted for 40,000 people to ride it. 4,000 rode it during the period we had it. So that was a total, that was a fiasco. Okay. Uh, but then there are other things, you know, we, we responded to a uh, constant barrage of requests. So we do, we deal with the lack of retail in downtown. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so we, we put together a very, very good program with a woman named Casey Brandcamp who uh, did a, a retail study on what, what sorts of retail services were in demand in downtown. She very carefully put together, uh, went out and networked with um, uh, individual proprietors and local chains 
and build a list of about 250 local um, retailers who would do well in downtown, you know, a wine store, um, various clothing stores, um, particularly off, you know, uh, the lower price clothing stores. Um, and at any one point, about 10% of those uh, tenants wanted to move downtown. Where we, where we couldn't make any progress was finding space, believe it or not. Okay. And, and uh, there just isn't a good uh, cluster of affordable retail space in downtown, like there was in the short north back in the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. where you could start a business. Um, the developers, they were very good about, about clustering the space they had, white boxing the space so it was ready to move in, mm-hmm. and then and then trying to you know, get a, a variety of tenants. Well, we didn't have that in downtown. We didn't have property owners who were willing to, um, you know, cluster space together, who were willing to white box space. Mark Wood, the Wood Companies, claims that Wood Companies in the short north has never leased a, a retail space that wasn't prepared in white box in advance. Well, nobody does that in downtown. And hmm. so downtown is a very hostile place to open a retail business if, if unless you're a credit-worthy business like the D. The, the uh, Dollar General DSX uh, grocery store on South yeah. High Street. And they're credit worthy. They, they could build out their space. They have the ability to build their space out. But in terms of encouraging independent retail, which is really the big potential supply of downtown because chains don't want to be downtown. It's a very immature right. market. Um, they need they need more help than downtown's willing to give. And so we finally had to give that up because we weren't able to give any, get any traction on that. And that was, that was frustrating because it's still, it's still something that people... Um, say they, they want to see a downtown and, and for good reason. Right. But is it a chicken and egg sort of situation of it's an immature market, there's not a whole lot of foot traffic, and there's not a, a, an appropriate amount, as you said, a, basically a cluster of real estate that basically supports each other with folks passing by like the short north. And the property owners basically not taking a chance on the additional investment of white boxing the space and getting folks in there. Well, yes, you're right about that. Um, but I think until one or more property owners in downtown actually makes a concerted effort to help build a consumer market in downtown, uh, it's not going to happen. Okay. Um, and then that's what happened in the short North is that Sandy Wood and Stelios Giannopoulos and Peter Everdopoulos, they, they, they consciously, put together a blend of retail uh, operations, supported the gallery hop, supported other efforts that, that created consumer traffic in the short north. And now, of course, they've got chains, national chains there. Um, it doesn't exist in downtown. And, and the, part of the problem is that um, there, there isn't, it's a hostile environment for, for retail. But part of the problem, too, is that the, one of the big portions of the retail market is uh, downtown residential. Uh-huh. Well, Everyone, you know, the problem in downtown is that everyone wants to own a car and warehouse a car in downtown. They pay whatever, $100 a month to park their cars. Well, if you have a car downtown, you're not going to walk to a neighborhood uh, grocery store and pay. Even two blocks, yeah. Even two blocks and pay more. You're going to get in your car and drive to a big box store. And so part of the problem is the lifestyle in downtown is such that it, it, it can't support downtown retail. Uh, and so it's, there are lots of things that are happening here. The other is that the price of space is very expensive and mm-hmm. owners aren't willing to, to, um, price their retail space in such a way that, you know, an independent retailer can afford to locate mm-hmm. there. Um, you know, I, I, must say a lot of the, a lot of the problem rests with the, 
with the, the property owners themselves and the okay. lack of any sort of leadership to get this started. Got it. Talk about sort of the difference between, first of all, the Discovery District is essentially east and just south of downtown, correct? It's east of 5th Street. So it's the eastern third of downtown. Okay. It goes from Columbus State on the north and I-670 in the north down to uh, I-70 on the south. And it's bordered generally by I-71 on the east. Got it. And so what is, how do you define that district as being, what, what are the cardinal differences between the two? Um, greatly uh, different uh, sets of property owners and different um set of um, uh, values uh, on the east side of downtown. The Discovery okay. District really considers itself to be a neighborhood. It, it really doesn't consider itself to be downtown so much as, as, a, as a neighborhood. Okay. And so it's a much more cohesive group of property owners than the core, than Capital Crossroads. Um, much more congenial in many ways. And, and they have, um, they had, uh, not as, uh, the property values aren't as high. And so there, there wasn't the money generated uh, that there was in, in the core of downtown, which has, you know, really high property values. Mm-hmm. And so they really focused on um, safety issues, um, uh, uh, outreach being a big part of that. Uh, specialty police officers were very, very important, in part because there are a lot of social services. Um, and this, this is not pointing fingers, but, you know, Faith Mission is there. The Community Kitchen is in that neighborhood. And, and the library is there. The library um, draws a lot of people who are have um, social needs in mm-hmm. the library. And so there's a concentration of things that, that, that either cause some disorder or perceptions of disorder. Mm-hmm. And so from their standpoint, uh, the Discovery District just wanted to, um, you know, keep keep order, ma- maintain order, um, knowing that there wasn't a serious crime issue and there isn't and never was a serious crime issue in downtown generally. Mm-hmm. But for them, uh, the, the focus was really um, safety and the appearance of safety um, with, with some other things as well. Gotcha. And any special initiatives in that area or what they tasks they wanted to accomplish? The one, the one um, task that was not accomplished there, which is, uh, was a disappointment. Um, from the beginning, uh, people in the Discovery District really wanted to do something to create a stronger neighborhood identity and give the neighborhood more of a curb appeal. And, and really the thing that they, they looked at that they thought was, was in, instructive was were the arches in the short north. You know, here's a hmm. physical thing in the short north that created an identity to find the neighborhood and fueled investment. And so the idea there was that uh, if we could find something for that neighborhood that would help define the neighborhood, give it an identity, and fuel investment, that that could have a very profound uh, impact, and it could. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, you know, our, the timing was bad um, because by the time the the uh, Discovery District, District came up with a plan, which is called the Discovery Trail, which okay. would have been uh, a trail designed by uh, not only arch- uh, landscape architects but artists, that would have would have really encouraged uh, people to walk from one uh, attraction to another attraction and would have helped create some synergy in that neighborhood. And the neighborhood mm-hmm. lacks synergy at this point. Uh, the Discovery District has a lot of insular destinations um, that draw people to them by car. Mm-hmm. They park, they go to that one thing, and they get the, in their car and they leave. And so there's no real 
synergy. There's no there's no walking from one place to another. So the whole idea was to get people to walk from one from one attraction to another attraction. The timing was bad. Um, the city had made a lot of capital commitments by the time the owners had come up with a plan and matching dollars. And okay. unlike the short north, where the city agreed to match the investment that the owners were were proposing in the short north and yeah. in downtown, for many of the um, of the capital improvements that Capital Crossroads did, um, the city was willing to match the the owners. Uh, the city had really made so many commitments with the soccer stadium, the parking garage, and the, on the side of Peninsula and mm-hmm. other things that there was there really was no money left over, and so that okay. that died. That initiative died. Okay. As we spoke about at the beginning of this conversation, you retired at a time of a whole lot of at least temporary change with the pandemic happening. And as you said, I think the day before, excuse yeah, the day before your last day uh, was the first day of protests downtown after the killing of George Floyd. And there's a big, I think, perception of lack of safety because of both of those things. Mm-hmm. If you had a crystal ball, because I'm sure you're thinking about it and have thought about it, first of all, those two things individually, and what what's that confluence going to do, or yeah, what needs to what what needs to happen? Yeah, there there are there are really three things happening that give the impression that downtown is no longer safe. One is, um, uh, of course, there are more vacancies, first floor vacancies, and mm-hmm. when you have when you have vacant storefronts, that feels less welcoming and less safe than if you have a occupied storefront. Mm-hmm. The second is that there are fewer people in the streets because so many of the offices still have uh, very few employees, if any employees working downtown. So you have fewer people on the streets and then you have um, some of the remnants, actually there are four things. The city has not enforced misdemeanor laws um, because of COVID-19. And so somebody who, you know, um, uh, is publicly inebriated and, you know, lies down the sidewalk and blocks pedestrian access Mm. uh, prior to COVID might've been taken off the sidewalk and down to a municipal court and, and, you know, spent a night in jail or, or whatever it might've, might've happened. Well, that's not happening anymore. So misdemeanors are going un um, unaddressed in downtown. Um, And then there's sort of the remnants of the George Floyd um, uh, protests. Mm-hmm. People kind of camped out in, in places near Broad and High. Um, all of that, you add all of that up, it's still very safe downtown. It just doesn't look real orderly and safe if you're not yeah. used to an urban environment. Um, and and I, I don't think anyone knows what's going to happen uh, when COVID-19 finally goes away. Um, and I don't think anyone can predict what's going to happen. I know that when, you know, New York after 9-11, uh, mm-hmm. lower Manhattan came back stronger than ever before. Um, and I, I hope that the same can be said for downtown because everything in downtown, downtown is operating on all cylinders before COVID-19 hit. Mm-hmm. You know, we had gone from a place that had a lot of stodgy, older, large businesses, which it still has, but we had, we had seen a lot of new startups in downtown creative businesses, tech businesses that occupied not the newest buildings necessarily that had the tax abatements, mm-hmm. but some of the older properties like the Chase Tower uh, drew Bold Penguin, which is a startup, a tech company, mm-hmm. which started off with a few employees has now ex- expanded into two floors of the building. Uh, and when COVID's over, 
those two floors will probably be able to accommodate 150 to 180 people. Mm -hmm. um, so we had new businesses, startups uh, coming into downtown, recycling of some of the older office buildings. Um, uh, and we with with CPASS, we'd, we'd seen some um, more we'd seen more transit use and less dependency on cars. And and we had several residential buildings that bought into CPASS, not just the commercial um, retail and office buildings. And so we had residents who would take the bus to see the movies at uh, Gateway, for example. And mm -hmm. so we're sort of we had begun to wean people off their cars in downtown. That was really a great thing. Um, uh, and biking and walking as well. Um, and 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 so and then we had practical retail opening up the um, uh, the Dollar General um, store uh, uh, at the corner of Rich and and uh, High Street uh, opened up along with Source CBS and some other places. So it, it made it more easy to to navigate downtown and be carless. I mean, all the things were were pointing in the right direction. And COVID then, of course, has decimated all that. So the reason to live downtown, which is access to bars and restaurants and theaters, doesn't exist because you can't really enjoy theater and bars and, and mm -hmm. restaurants now. Um, people are afraid to ride the bus. Uh, I don't think it's any more dangerous than being in a, you know, in a store with somebody. But I get that. Right. I understand why. Um, and then, you know, then there are, the employees aren't downtown anymore. And now we keep hearing things like, oh, maybe people will work remotely after COVID is, is over. Um, and so there's, there are a lot of um, question marks right now, but I think people like to, to rub shoulders with, with other people, whether mm -hmm. it's on a bus or in an office. And, and I know plenty of people, including my wife are losing their minds working at home. And yeah. so, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe downtown will roar back stronger than ever once this is over. I hope so. I certainly hope so. Yeah, absolutely. So what are your plans for retirement? You've, you know, you're fairly young guy and have some, you know, have and some work a, in you, I imagine, given the yeah, way you're talking. Yeah, I do. I haven't, I haven't figured it out yet. But here's, here's okay. why I did what I did. My father was, a, was an attorney and he worked until he was 80 years old and his law firm kicked him out because he started to get okay. dementia. And then he had no idea what to do with himself. He was too old to sort of make make a transition. So I, I looked at that as a, as a negative example. I love my father. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm going I'm to retire, rewire at a young enough age that I can figure out uh, something else to do that's meaningful for me. Yeah. Um, since, But, you know, retiring in, into a pandemic is a little difficult because the, the opportunities to sort of get out there uh, and do things I was thinking I wanted to do are, are kind of limited right now. Right. But I will say that it's been three and a half months now uh, of sleeping in and <laughs> being completely spontaneous and reading books and cooking more and going camping. I kind of like not doing anything, but eventually I'll get bored and, and figure out the next step. I don't know what that's going to be. You know, Columbus could use a screamer. We've had, we've had a share of screamers, people that just scream about issues and not yeah. worry about the consequence. Liz Lesnar was like that for a while. Yeah, uh, she was. <laughs> and, and I didn't agree with him on uh, many things. And, and Liz, you know, Liz could be a tough person to deal with, but I think every city needs somebody who points out obvious things that everyone else is afraid to point out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for example, what did smart Columbus do? Can anyone really say what smart Columbus did with that, what, $90 million or whatever it was it got? Or uh, uh, why do people complain about tax abatements in downtown and the short North when 80% or more of the tax abatements 
are in places like New Albany and Obetz and Dublin and other suburbs. I mean, it's the the there's so many uh, issues. Why are we making? Why are we building more interchanges um, north of 270 when we uh-huh. know that leads to sprawl? Why are we allowing Delaware County to to develop into more sprawl, which will create more expense for you know highway maintenance, highway construction, sewers? I mean, there's so many issues that everyone's afraid to talk about in this in this city, um, and I'm not sure I have the strength to do it. <laughs> But I, uh, <laughs> that's one thing that has occurred to me is that just becoming the person who points out the obvious. I th- I absolutely see value in that. And I think that what's interesting is what's happened with with some of that. It, it congeals over one specific issue and then it's owned by a certain group of people, which by extension then is perceived as having some political bent or view and it's not really addressed as hey let's critically evaluate this thing it's mm-hmm. funny it goes back to we had such a politically diverse group of property owners downtown but when you presented them with data and were able to say what do you want to do with this and and let them have agency over it they kind of did the right thing it mm-hmm. tended to be but yeah, it's. Uh, I think a lot of it's about perception and sort of how you present it. I will say, I, I encourage everyone to listen back to the first episode that you and I did, because it was so exciting. A- as a kid who grew up on, you know, just south of Clintonville, who rode the city bus every day, and you, without any prompting in that interview, said, well, I'll tell you why people don't ride the bus, because it's the black bus. And what you meant there is there's a perception that it's not right. for right. A s- certain people. It's not for white people. It's not for middle class people. Right. It's for poor black folks. Right. And I think it's important to speak. It's not even truth to power. It's just truth. Right. You know, and we've we've had folks like we've had some uh, truth tellers that actually weren't right. You know, we've had our Bill Moss. Uh, and we've had uh, other folks that sometimes are speaking the truth and sometimes they're coming down on the wrong side of things. And, you know, it takes a certain amount of strength to be to be in that role because yeah. you're targeted then. People do and say terrible things about you and and, you know, you piss people off. And that's not a, an easy thing to do or a comfortable thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, because you, you have to own it, right? You have to back right. it up. Right. And there's some danger there, too, with being right. too uh, ingrained in your thoughts. I want to wrap up just by asking, you've been here for roughly 30 years, right? In Columbus? Yeah. Uh, let's see, 1977. Oh, well. 43 no. years. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Talk about sort of what you think Columbus is doing well, and the obvious follow-up to that is what could Columbus do better? Mm-hmm. Well, Columbus has done, I think, a very good job of densifying. Uh, when okay. you look at um, the short north, for example, um, it, when I was first in Columbus, there was no walkable, mixed-use, pedestrian-oriented neighborhood. German Village was the closest thing to that. It, was, it wasn't a nearly a complete neighborhood um, as charming. still is, of course. But mm-hmm. there's no real um, neighborhood that had a, had a city pulse to it. And, and, and now we've got the Short North. We've got uh, Grandview Avenue. Uh, Parsons Avenue is is humming along. Franklin is humming along, and as people get the idea of 
of urban living. And, and I think we'll see development happening much quicker because there are examples of successful urban um, mm. developments that have taken place already. Whereas when the short north is going through its evolution, there is no example locally that people could hang their hat on and say, oh, it's worth you know putting lots of money into creating something like this. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think the biggest thing uh, that I've noticed is um, more choice. There's more choice uh, now than there was back then. Um, it's easier to live here and be able to walk to services and, and not own a car. Um, and uh, there, there are so many ways of getting around now that um, you can choose your lifestyle in ways that you couldn't choose your lifestyle back then. And that's the mark of a mature city. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and I think that's probably the the most, uh, for me, the, the change that has been most meaningful. Uh, I mean, there are so many things about the city. It's uh, welcoming to, you know, it's a gay-friendly city. Um, I think racially speaking, it, it's, a, it's a relatively um, uh, accepting place, um, uh, which is not to say that we're not with our, our own problems here. But mm-hmm. um, I, I think that socially it's, it's, a, it's in a good place. Um, and the, the physical environment is much more interesting now than it was back then. Mm-hmm. And what could we do better? Well, uh, <laughs> the, um, there's still a big lifestyle. I, I think the, the biggest issue we have to deal with here is lifestyle. People can't have it all. People who want to have an urban environment then have to live like they are in an urban environment. You can't live in the short north or downtown and treat it like it's an apartment complex in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. The people uh, need to use their imagination and and think about Columbus like they would think about a city that they travel to on vacation. So if they go to Amsterdam and they love the bicycles and the trams and the the walking and the trains, they can. We might not have train service uh, in in Ohio. Um, but you can still live that lifestyle here. Um, mm-hmm. But that, that triggers something. I think the biggest thing that's missing right now in, in Columbus and Ohio is inner city transportation. We've got a good, we have a good local bus system that can get anyone who lives in an urban neighborhood can get around pretty easily by Coda mm-hmm. or by, and, and bicycle and, and Uber and all those things. But if you want to go from here to Cleveland or Cincinnati, guess what your option is? Have you taken Greyhound recently? Not not in 20 years. Yeah, well, <laughs> I have. Uh, I finally swore off Greyhound about a year ago. Okay. Um, it, it's a miserable experience. You don't know when the bus is going to leave. It's mm-hmm. a humiliating boarding process. People scream at you at the PA system. The buses are filthy. Mm-hmm. They break. They literally break down between cities. And the ter- and there, there, there aren't many runs. And so your choice of times are very limited. And the only option is to rent a car. See, I don't mm-hmm. own a car myself. My wife does, but I don't own a car. Mm-hmm. Or fly. If you fly, you have to fly through Detroit or Pittsburgh, pay four or five hundred dollars, and it takes about six hours. So, if and you, you could have driven there in right. So, if you want to go to Cleveland or Cincinnati, and many people want to go to those cities without having to stare at a windshield for two or three hours, mm-hmm. your choice is Greyhound. And so, there is no inner city transportation in the state of Ohio. It's 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 more than embarrassing. It will drive smart people out of the state because I can mm-hmm. tell you that I don't know what the percentage is, five percent, 10 percent, 15 percent. I don't know what it is, but there are a lot of people who are rich enough to own cars who don't want to drive. If mm-hmm. they're going to visit friends in Cleveland, go to see a game or go in business, they want to be able to read, work mm-hmm. or nap. 
And, yep. and, and until the state figures that out, um, it's, it's a laughing stock. The last time I took Greyhound from Cleveland to, to Columbus, I went to the terminal in Cleveland on time mm-hmm. and we, we queued up to board the bus for mm-hmm. Columbus when we were supposed to queue up. And the announcement came over um, that the bus was late sit down. And so we all sat down. We queued up two more times and the two more times that the PA person screamed, sit down, the bus is late. That's all the information we got. There was a family from Spain at the terminal playing cards. Who were, they were traveling around the States. And of course, if, if you're from Europe, you think any civilized country has a good transit system. So right. The, the bus finally, we finally boarded three hours late. It broke down three times on the way to Columbus. And I thought, uh, what do those people think of Ohio? Are we right. really a third world country? And, and yeah. I think we are a third world country. Our health care, our transportation, our, you know, our, our uh, uh, projected lifespans. If you start mm-hmm. going through the data, it, it's an embarrassing, terrible situation. And public transportation is right up there at the top of my list of, of major problems in the state. I don't even care if we, I love to have train service. Don't get me wrong. It'd be fabulous. I would just like to have reliable, clean buses. Yeah. I, one step in the right direction. Right. Yeah. Well, Cleve, listen, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. This is fun. Thank you for listening to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. Again, you can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Please rate, subscribe, share this episode of the Confluence Cast with your friends, family, contacts, enemies, your favorite screamer. If you're interested in sponsoring the Confluence Cast, get in touch with us. We can be reached by email at info at theconfluencecast.com. Our theme music was composed by Benji Robinson. Our producer is Philip Cogley. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.